right, good morning, church. It's great to see you all. And good morning again to our friends who are joining us online. We're glad to have you worshiping with us today. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to our scripture reading for today's sermon. And we'll be looking at a story from the Gospel of John, John chapter 4. And it's a fairly long chapter, but for our scripture reading, we'll be going through verses 27 to 42. John chapter 4, verses 27 to 42. Fairly familiar story, but hopefully we'll be able to learn uh, some new lessons together as we read God's word and dive in this morning. John chapter 4, verses 27 to 42. I'll read it for us, and you can follow along in your Bibles and also on the screen if you wish. Verse 27, John chapter 4. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who has told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. Because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we, are no, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. This is God's word. Amen. A few days ago, I was doing my devotional reading, and my mind started wandering down a rabbit trail. I wondered to myself, what are some of the greatest revival stories in the Bible? This is how my mind works at times. I guess I still have this natural curiosity about the Bible, even though I've been privileged to serve as a pastor for over a decade and a half, I'll occasionally think of these random arbitrary questions like, what are some of the greatest revival stories in the Bible? I guess I'm weird in that way. Now, when I use the word revival, I'm talking about an event in which a large number of people turn away from their sin and believe in Jesus over a short period of time, sometimes even in a single day. Now, as I was thinking about this question, three 
answers immediately came to my mind. The first was Peter's sermon at Pentecost. The end of Acts chapter 2 tells us that about 3,000 people in Jerusalem came to faith in Christ after hearing his sermon. That's a huge number of people becoming believers in just one day. From one sermon. Amazing. I also thought of Jonah's ministry in Nineveh. If you know Jonah's story, you probably remember that Jonah didn't even want to go there. He was the reluctant prophet who tried to run away from God, but after a long detour, he finally ended up where he was supposed to be. And Jonah chapter 3 tells us that the entire city of Nineveh, from the king all the way down to the lowest servant, the entire city repented of their sin after they heard Jonah's preaching. That is remarkable. The third and final event I thought of is today's story from John chapter 4. I would put this on the short list of greatest revivals in the Bible. Now, the main character of our story, of course, is Jesus. He's always the main character, pretty much any and every story. But there's another important person in this particular story, and it's the woman that he meets at the well. She has a questionable past, but as we saw, even from our scripture reading, she also led her entire town to Christ after her encounter with Jesus. And I believe her story has a lot to teach us about what it means to be a Christian who lives on mission. I wanted to preach on this story as a second half of a two-part series that I'm doing on our vision for 2022, a vision that we've affectionately described as R&R. &R. Here's our vision statement for this year in full. Recover and realign. We are deeply aware that the COVID-19 pandemic has had a significant emotional, spiritual, and relational toll on our church. In 2022, we are committed to R&R &R as a spiritual family. We will offer loving and grace-filled spaces for our people to begin the journey towards recovery. We also hope to realign with the trajectory of RCC's original vision as we implement our discipleship model into the life of the church. If some of this language sounds familiar, it's because our pastor John was quoting some of this in his pastoral prayer just a few minutes ago. And last Sunday, I also covered the first R of recovery as we looked together at the prophet Jeremiah's heart-wrenching prayer of grief and frustration from Lamentations chapter 3. And we learned that we can be honest with God about our grief, about our pain, because that's often where he meets us most deeply and personally. I think many of us would benefit from acknowledging the significant emotional and spiritual and relational toll that this pandemic has had on our society as a whole, but also on our individual lives, our families, and even our church. Being honest with God about our frustrations, our pain maybe even our anger. That can be an important first step as we take this journey toward recovery. But there's another R in our vision statement, that is realignment. We also hope to realign with the trajectory 
of RCC's original vision as we implement our discipleship model into the life of the church. Now I'd like to focus today on this theme of realignment as we take a closer look at this meeting between Jesus and this woman at the well. And one of the key lessons from our story is that every follower of Jesus can also be a witness for Jesus. Every follower of Jesus can also be a witness for Jesus. I think that's important for a church like ours that was birthed out of a vision to be a gospel community on mission. And that, by the way, is the vision statement for our church overall. We exist to be a gospel community on mission. One of our hopes for 2022 is that we'll be able to realign with this original vision, especially mission component of our vision statement, a gospel community on mission. So let's dive in. For the sake of organization, I have divided the story into three parts. The first part is what I'm going to call the encounter. The second part is the turns. And the third and last part is the breakthrough. Let's start with the encounter, part one. Now, if you're already familiar with the story, if you've read it a number of times, you've probably heard other sermons on it, Bible studies on it. If you're familiar with the story, then you may have also noticed that John is very deliberate about how he presents the characters. One example of this is that he never tells us the woman's name. Do you notice that? He never tells us her name, but John still says enough about her for us to realize that this meeting with Jesus wasn't a coincidence. We know, for example, from what John tells us, that she is a Samaritan. She's a Samaritan woman. John mentions that earlier in verse 7. Now, why might that matter? Well, again, if we're familiar with the story, then some of us may have learned that the Samaritans and the Jews in those days did not get along. That hostility wouldn't be too strong of a word to describe their relationship. And this hostility went back for centuries because of events that happened in their shared history. And the tension got so bad that people from both groups often went out of their way to avoid each other. And so, for example, if any Jew from the southern area of Palestine needed to travel north to Galilee or vice versa, they would often take the route around the Samaritan villages. That made their trips longer, but that was still more appealing than having to go through the region where the Samaritans lived. John clues us in on this in the second part of verse 9, where he says, For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Racial and cultural hostility is often as old as time. That's an unfortunate reality that's still true even today. Yes, We honor and thank God for the life and legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., but we also acknowledge that the work still needs to be done. It's not yet finished. And this makes Jesus' actions in our story even more surprising. Not only did he choose to take the shorter route through Samaria, verse 4 in our chapter actually says he had to go through Samaria. He was compelled to go. But even more, 
as he's going through Samaria, he meets this woman and he takes the time to actually speak with her, to have a conversation with her. In verse 7, he asks her for a drink. And even she's surprised by this. In verse 9, she says, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Clearly, she's aware that Jesus is breaking some cultural norms, even just by asking her for a drink. But there's something else going on. John also reveals, in his masterful retelling of the story, another layer that's hiding beneath this ethnic tension between Jews and Samaritans. And that layer is that this unnamed woman seems to be hiding something. In verse 6, we read that it was noon when she met Jesus at the well. D.A. Carson, a New Testament scholar, comments that women in those days usually traveled in groups when they went to the local well to draw their daily water. And they usually went in the morning. Going in groups was safer than going alone, and going in the morning was better because it wasn't nearly as hot. But the woman in our story, she's by herself, and it's noon. So even with this behavior, we can see that there's something off about her. Now she's talking with Jesus. He seems to hit a nerve when he mentions a different kind of water. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I don't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. I mean, that sounds great to her. Wow, if, if this water is different, whatever it is that he's offering, then I don't have to keep coming to this well by myself at noon. I don't have to keep doing that. So yes, give me this different water, whatever it is. But when she asks for this different water, the topic of conversation takes a sudden turn. That brings us to, verse, uh, to part two, the turns. The turns. Look with me at verse 16. Verse 16 says, Jesus told her, go, call your husband, and come back. Now that is a very abrupt change in topic. That is an abrupt turn. And clearly it makes this woman uncomfortable. Verse 16, she says, or verse 17, she says, I have no husband. Now, this is a fairly common tactic, right? When we find ourselves in a conversation that has suddenly gotten a bit uncomfortable, we'll often say as little as possible and hope the other person won't keep probing. Uh, what did you buy there? Well, well, where? There, there, that Amazon box right there. Oh, that? Oh, that nothing. Nothing. Maybe the Samaritan woman was hoping for the same thing. Just say enough and hope they'll let it go. I have no husband. Period. But Jesus wasn't about to let her off the hook so easily. Let's keep reading in verse 17. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Well, the conversation was just a bit awkward before. It is super awkward now. 
This woman is hiding some skeletons in her closet, and Jesus has just dragged them all out into the broad daylight. Now, I do want to note that many interpreters have concluded that Jesus was calling out this Samaritan woman's promiscuous lifestyle. She was sleeping around with different guys, and she knew it was wrong, and she felt ashamed about it. And that's why she was, you know, going to the well by herself at noon so that she wouldn't be seen by anyone because her reputation kind of preceded her. Now, that's possible, but I don't think that was what was happening. A New Testament scholar and pastor named Mickey Klink offers what I think is a better take in a commentary he recently published. He writes, the verse says nothing about her being a prostitute as is commonly assumed. If anything, the opposite is implied. She is a victim of an abusive system where husbands can freely divorce their wives, leaving a woman used and helpless so that even her most recent man will not marry her. I think that's closer to the mark. This Samaritan woman wasn't necessarily immoral. She just lived in a culture that gave men the power to sleep with a woman and then cast her aside when he felt like moving on. And in her case, this happened not just once, but five times. So yes, she was deeply ashamed, but who can blame her? Anyone would feel that way if they were treated like she was by these so-called men in her life. But here in our story, she meets another man. And Jesus is a different man. Yes, he did abruptly drag her skeletons out into the open, but it wasn't to shame her. Now, she doesn't know this yet, so now she resorts to a different strategy that we often use when the uncomfortable conversations stays uncomfortable. We change the topic. Verse 19, Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we worship we must worship is in Jerusalem. This is another abrupt turn here. She's just trying to put the skeletons back into the dark. She first admits, yes, what Jesus has just said about her is true, but then let's change the topic. Let's talk about something else. Let's talk about worship. Let's talk about the proper place for worship. Should we worship on this mountain in Samaria or in Jerusalem, where the Jews worship. And this leads to one of the most important conversations about worship in the entire New Testament. I'm not focusing on worship today, so I'm not going to comment much about this, other than to say that true worship isn't defined by where you are or where you come from. We can worship anywhere, even in a public school cafetorium like here. And yes, anyone can worship God regardless of his or her ethnicity. Jews do not have an inside track that other people groups can't access. I know that doesn't sound like that big of a deal for us, but it would have been revolutionary for many ethnic Jews in Jesus' day. True worship is not defined by where you are or where you come from. Worship is first and foremost about a person. And for this woman, it just so happens that this person 
who is the object of all true worship, is also the man who's sitting with her at the well. It just happens to be the same man who had to go through Samaria to meet her. It just happens to be the same man who broke the cultural norms of their day by asking this woman for a drink of water and having a real conversation with her, even though he's a Jewish man and she's a Samaritan woman. She may have not have known about it at the time, but this Samaritan woman's seemingly coincidental encounter was with none other than God himself in human flesh. And Jesus got through to her in a way that no one else could. We can see this from the way that she responds once the conversation's over. That takes us to our third and last part for today, the breakthrough. The breakthrough. Look with me at verse 28. It says, Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come! See a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Verse 30 says, they came out of the town and made their way toward him. It's almost as if she didn't even say thank you or goodbye when the conversation ended. All we know is that she left her water jar at the well and went straight back into her town, the same town with the people who probably shunned her, who probably talked behind her back. Maybe even they chuckled at her whenever she passed by. But if she felt embarrassed before, even to the point of going to the well by herself at high noon to, be avoid, to avoid being seen by people, well, all that shame went straight out the door after she met Jesus. She just openly tells anyone and everyone around her, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And I have no doubt that the people heard what she was saying. How could they not? I mean, the change that they had to have seen in her demeanor must have been so noticeable. I could almost imagine them whispering to each other, Whoa! I mean, this is the same woman, but my goodness, there's something definitely different about her. And obviously they were curious because John tells us in verse 30, they came out of the town and made their way toward Jesus. And if you keep reading on, we'll see that many of these folks who came out to see him soon believe that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. In fact, verse 39 makes it clear that they became believers specifically because of the woman's testimony. To put it differently, this still unnamed woman led her entire town to faith in Christ. God used her to spark what I believe is one of the greatest revival stories in the entire New Testament. You know, I mentioned earlier that one of the main lessons from today's story is that every follower of Jesus can also be a witness for Jesus. Now, I know many of us feel like we don't have what it takes to be on mission. I, I don't know the Bible well enough. I didn't go to seminary. I won't be able to answer all the tough questions that people ask about Christianity. I, I don't always live out what I believe. My unbelieving friends and relatives will see me for the hypocrite that I know I am. On and on. Well, that may all be true. I mean, yes, we could all benefit from knowing our Bibles better. We could all benefit from reading up on apologetics. And who among us here can say that we 
are not hypocrites in some way. We all fail to consistently live out what we believe. And that's precisely why we often take some time during our Sunday services to confess our sins and be reminded of God's forgiveness. But we can still learn from this woman's example. Every follower of Jesus can also be a witness for Jesus. Did this woman have any formal theological education? Probably not. In fact, she probably didn't have any education, period. And it's quite clear she didn't enjoy the best reputation in her town. If there's any person who believed that she didn't have what it takes to be a witness for Jesus, it was this woman. And so what can we learn as we think about our own calling? as so-called ordinary Christians living each day with our families at home, among our classmates at school, with our co-workers at the office. How can this woman's example help us realign with the trajectory of our church's original vision to be a gospel community on mission? Well, let me try to answer that by offering three very quick reflections as we close. First, we must admit that we have nothing to offer to Jesus. We must admit that we have nothing to offer to him. This woman knew she had nothing to offer for her salvation. All she had was her sin. All she had was her brokenness and her shame. She knew that she had no bargaining power with Jesus. All she could do was simply receive his mercy and his love. Are we all that different, you and I? Well, sure, we might be more educated than she was. We might make a lot more money than she did. We might enjoy far more social mobility than she could imagine possible in her day. But there's one thing that all genuine Christians share with this woman, and that is a painful awareness that we have nothing to offer to Jesus. For our salvation other than our sin. We come to him spiritually bankrupt. We have no bargaining power. All we can do is simply receive his mercy and his love. We want to realign with our calling to be on mission for Jesus as his witnesses. We need to realize that we're not all that different than this woman. Our prayer needs to be, Lord, help me to remember that I have nothing to offer to you. Second, we must believe that Jesus is all that he claimed to be. We must believe that Jesus is all that he claimed to be. You know, two things happen because of this life-changing conversation between this woman and Jesus. First, her sense of personal dignity was restored. And that's what Jesus does when he really meets us, right? He restores our sense of personal dignity. The shame she used to carry with her went out the window. And second, 
she met the Messiah himself. And you know, I would love, if there was a comic book version of this story, I'd love to see in those thought bubbles that those comic books often have, what she was thinking, what thoughts were racing through her mind in verses 25 and 26, which tell us, the woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. And can you imagine the shock as she heard these words? We know at the very least that she was still processing what she had heard as she ran back to her town and spoke to anyone who was in the listening range. Because verse 29 tells us, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? It's almost like she, she heard it, and part of her believes it, but the other part of her can't get her mind to fully wrap around this idea that this man who met her, who spoke with her, who exposed some of the skeletons in her closet, this could be the Messiah. But sometime after this, she and pretty much her entire town came to a decision about Jesus. If we look at verse 42, they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. You know, we realize something important about ourselves when we experience Jesus' saving mercy. We realize we have nothing to offer to him. But we must also realize something important about Jesus, and that is he really is all that he claimed to be. He is truly the Messiah, and he really is the Savior of sinners. And both of these realizations are key, my brothers and sisters. We must be convinced about who we are, and we must also be convinced about who Jesus is. We must know that we are sinners with nothing to offer to Jesus. We can't save ourselves. And we must also know that he is the promised Messiah who came to save sinners through his life and death and resurrection. Now, I know most of us already agree with this, especially those of us who've been going to church for a while. You are not hearing anything new today. Most of us, we already know who we are, and we already know who Jesus is. I guess my question is, do we really believe it? Do we really believe it? If I can make this even a bit more personal, do we really believe that Jesus isn't just the Savior, but that he's your Savior? He didn't just come to save the world. He came to save you. He lived and he died and he rose again for you. For you. Do you believe this? If you want to realign with our calling to be on mission for Jesus as his witnesses, our prayer must be, Jesus, help me to know and I have nothing to offer to you. And our prayer must also be, Jesus, help me to truly believe that you are everything that you claim to be. Third and last, we must be willing to share our salvation story with others. 
We must be willing to share our salvation story with others. I'm fairly certain this woman didn't give an eloquent defense of the Christian faith. I might be wrong, but I'm guessing that she did not quote any scholars or theologians or statements of faith when people in her town started asking her about her encounter with Jesus. But the one thing she did do was she shared her story. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? You may not spark a revival like this woman did in our story. You may not bring your entire town or your entire neighborhood or even your entire family to faith. But if you are a genuine Christian, if you have truly put your trust in Jesus as the Messiah and as your Savior, well, then you have a salvation story. You have a testimony. Now, it may not seem all that impressive. Not every testimony is like this woman's, you know, that 180-degree turnaround. That's okay. That is okay. I grew up in a Christian home. I've been going to church pretty much my entire life. I first started sensing a call to ministry sometime in my later high school years. That is such an ordinary testimony in so many ways. But it's real. And it's mine. And if you are a genuine Christian, then you also have a testimony. You have a salvation story and it is real and it's often a great place to start as you're building a new friendship or reconnecting with an old acquaintance all you're doing is you're just sharing a part of yourself a very meaningful and important part of yourself and you know we kind of live in a time where it's uncool to dismiss someone's personal experience or story and so at the very least we live in a time where people will at least hear your story and they'll be able to sense that it's real that it's genuine and it may be hard for us to believe this but there may be people you know people that you see on a regular basis who need to hear your story I don't think Jesus had to go through Samaria just to meet this woman. He had a divine appointment with this entire town. They were among a people who had been told for centuries that they are inferior, that they're second-class citizens because of their ethnicity. But Jesus came into the land so that they would know through this woman's testimony that he's the Messiah, not just for the Jews, but for all people. The truth is, more people even today need to hear this good news. They need to hear that God is willing and ready to forgive their sins. They need to hear that He can take away their guilt and shame. And some of these folks who need to hear, they may be people we know. And so we just need to be ready to share our salvation story when the opportunity comes. If you want to realign with our calling to be on mission for Jesus as his witnesses, then our prayer must also be, Lord, help me 
to be willing and ready to share my salvation story with others. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time this morning in your word. We thank you for this remarkable woman. Perhaps in heaven we'll finally learn her name, but we are thankful that you used her to spark one of the greatest revivals in the entire Bible. And Lord, we are encouraged from her example. We're often more aware, painfully aware of what we're lacking how we're lacking, how we can't be witnesses because of this, because of that. Some of them are legitimate factors, but Lord, we are also reminded that you've given many of us here a real salvation story. You've made us realize at some point that we are broken, unworthy sinners with nothing to offer to you, and yet you loved us. You embraced us. You forgave us. You accepted us. You continue to embrace us as your own. You helped us realize, Jesus, that you're not just a great teacher, you're not just a great prophet. You're not just a miracle worker. You are the Messiah. You are the Savior of the world. You are our Savior. Jesus, you're my Savior. You've helped us to realize that. And so, Lord, we pray, even in our brokenness, even in the pain that many of us are carrying because of this pandemic, even in our journey toward recovery, we also pray that you would Renew in us a desire, indeed a sense of calling, to be not only followers of Jesus, but witnesses for Jesus. And perhaps for many of us here, the first place to start is just sharing our story. Lord, would you please remind us of the great work that you've done in our lives, even in our so-called ordinary testimony. And Lord, help us to be on the lookout for opportunities to share our salvation story with people you may be preparing, people who need to hear this good news of your love. We ask this in Jesus' name.